Welcome to Lumpen Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on Lumpen Radio. This week, we spoke to the head of the Chicago Principals Union about his possible run for mayor, heard from the director of a legendary movie, and learned about the city of Chicago's technology. All this plus the Trump Diaries and much more, only on the Lumpen Week in Review for September 8, 2017. Mario Smith spoke to Troy LaRiviere, the head of the Chicago Principals Union, about equity, Rahm Emanuel, and LaRiviere's political ambitions on a special Labor Day edition of News from the Service Entrance. Joining me on the show right now, he is the president of the, excuse me, Chicago Principals and Administrators Association. He is a, a longtime principal teacher, uh, activist, a good brother. I'm glad that he agreed to be on the show today. It's Troy LaRivier. Peace, man. How you doing? I'm good. Thanks for having me, brother. Peace to you. Thank you for coming. Um, Thanks for letting me in. <laughs> as you can see, we got a lot going on today. It's a it's a busy day here. Yes, it's just the beginning of something that looks like it's going to end up uh, spectacular. Yes, absolutely. Okay. It's a lot going on already. Yeah, it is. We starting Labor Day off right today. Um, yeah, I, I just I, ran into Bill Ayers on the way in here. That's right. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. That's this that kind of day today, and yeah. that's that's that dude. So you know we are we are legit and on the move. Um, there's a lot to talk about with you. I want to start to talk with you about CPS. Um, school starts back tomorrow, officially, for for a lot of Chicago public schools, not the ones that have already been open a few weeks. And the the budget tragedy that is being uh, dealt with currently with CPS. What is your opinion on how it's being handled, not just on the state level, but on the local level and outside of people like Chance the Rapper donating money to Chicago Public Schools? What do you suggest or what are some of your ideas on how we can bridge this gap of being in financial ruin one day and then not being in this place anymore? How do we how do we get out of that? That's uh, probably the best way anybody has ever asked me that question. So I appreciate the opportunity to give a full answer to it, even though I would have given a full one either way. You actually <laughs> invited a full answer. That's what I do sometimes. <laughs> sometimes. Every now and then. I Every now and then. Right. Uh, so long term, I think you have to look at this from a 20-year perspective. Mm-hmm. Like, How did we get into this mess? Mm-hmm. The conversation almost never starts there, and it never starts there for a reason, because if it started there, then we would see much of the local blame for this problem. Like, mm-hmm. they blame the state all the time. The, 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 it's the funding form. It's the funding form. Well, they just passed the funding form, and I guarantee you they're going to continue having problems. But if we go back to, you know, 2001, you know, after Paul Vallis left, mm-hmm. I'm not a big fan of Paul Vallis's education policies, mm-hmm. but he he knew how to handle a district, the district's finances. He left the district with a billion dollar surplus. Mm-hmm. He left the district with its pensions fully funded. Now, the state funding formula back then was the same funding formula that it is now. So how can the state funding formula be to blame if it was the now I'm not saying the formula is was good. Right. It was unfair. Right. It was inadequate. But right. there's a difference between inadequacy and crisis. Mm-hmm. And so between 2001 and now we have gone from inadequacy to crisis. And so what changed to take inadequacy 
to crisis. Right. It can't be the funding formula because that's been the, the state funding formula because that's been the same thing. So in order to figure out what's to blame, you have to look at what was it that changed. And a couple of the key things that changed, number one, CPS suspending practices. One, they decided they just weren't going to pay into the pension anymore. This mm-hmm. is a CPS decision, not a state decision. This mm-hmm. is CPS. Uh, under both mayors, Daly and Emanuel, mm-hmm. took this strategy. Number two, they decided they'd go on a spending spree. Both mayors, Daly and Emanuel, went on a, a school-building spending spree where they're fin- spending hundreds of millions of dollars to build schools, new schools in a district that's not getting new students. Hmm. You won't find any high-performing school district, the ones that we all want to send our kids to, that does such an irresp- has such an irresponsible way of managing their, their fiscal operations, their mm-hmm. money. Uh, and so you're spending hundreds of millions of dollars on new schools and you're not getting new students. That is a waste. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there's this strategy of borrowing and increasing the amount. And so when you borrow, that's, that's interest. And so an ever-increasing amount of our budget is going off to pay high-priced pr- high interest on these loans that both Daly and Emanuel took out. Mm. And so those are examples of what this district did to create, to take inadequacy and exacerbate it into crisis. Mm-hmm. And so those things have to stop. And they still haven't finished. This, he still has this borrowed lots of money so that we can build new school, school reform strategy. So it doesn't make any sense. And I was just going to say, if you know that that's the reason why <laughs> this is happening, and and if, if Valis left us with a billion-dollar-plus surplus, why why continue to go down this road of building new schools where you don't have new students? What is the end game for doing that? That's a wonderful question, brother. And so for that, we have to look beyond Emmanuel and beyond Daly to look at the forces that were behind both of them. Mm. Right? And both of them had these predatory, parasitic economic forces behind them. Bankers and financiers. We have to think about the city and the school system as a cash, for them, it's a cash crop. Mm-hmm. The CPS budget is almost $6 billion. The city budget, $9 billion. And so that is a huge source of potential profit. Right. If I'm a financier or an investment banker, if I can, and that's not even counting that $9 billion, that's just a yearly budget. That's not even counting the the future tax dollars that I can get from this city as a predatory investment banker if I loan it some money right. and they give me these interest payments. And so if I want to profit off that $6 billion, I have to figure out how to get the district to stop spending that $6 billion on things that benefit the kids and spend that $6 billion on things that benefit them, things that benefit me as this, uh, if I'm this corporate uh, Raider, mm-hmm. and, and I can't do that unless I get a candidate that will create these contractual relationships. A candidate that I can run for office, he can get the office, and then use his power in that office to create contractual relationships between the school system and me that send money my way and not toward the children. And so, as a result of that, you get things like a Barbara Bird Bennett who goes in and sends a twenty million dollar contract 
to her former boss while she's cutting school budgets. Mm. You can't send it to them unless you take it from the kids. Or you get a Rahm Emanuel sending hundreds of millions of dollars to Sodexo, Magic, and Aramark. Mm-hmm. And right after you sign, the, before the ink is even dry on the contract, Aramark is, or Sodexo gives you a quarter million dollar campaign contribution. <laughs> or you get a Rahm Emanuel again who gets financed by bankers who then profit when you enter into these into these basic payday loan agreements where mm. we loan you a mm. uh, hundred million dollars and over the course of that that loan your taxpayers that you represent are going to end up paying us back 200 millions of dollars 200 million dollars and that's a hundred million dollars in interest that won't be going for services for those same taxpayers so that's the game we're all involved in here. Mm-hmm. We have elected somebody who's like a Manchurian candidate, who's a plant, whose sole purpose, it, who, who has as his sole purpose in governing to divert as many of our tax dollars towards his campaign contributions and away from our, the services for our kids and our city as humanly possible. That's the game. We're with Troy LaRavier here at News from the Service Interest, the radio show, 105.5 FM Lumpin Radio. You can uh, be in contact with the show. Go to Mario and Hyde Park on Twitter. Do we need in Chicago an elected school board? So I'm going to answer that one, but let me finish off one last point. Sure. To to, to, to bring this all back. So with those um, building new schools, for example, Mm -hmm. right? guess who profits when the school system decides to build new schools? just so happens that there's a federal incentive that lets banks double their profits if they invest in what? School construction. I did not know that. Yep. Banks get to double. Look it up on Democracy Now! Mm-hmm. Juan Gonzalez. Okay. Juan Gonzalez, and for your listeners, Juan Gonzalez, Democracy Now! School Construction. Look that up. And what he found is it's happening. He found it in Jersey, but it's happening all across the country where these banks will get these will back these elected officials in big cities and then they get in and then all of a sudden their philosophy for school reform is to just keep building new schools. And every time they build these new schools, they're financed by banks that get to profit from school construction when the kids lose from this school construction, particularly if it's a school that's not needed, like in Chicago. Um, But in terms of an elected school board, to get back to that question, Mm -hmm. so we need a school board that is representative, number one, and competent, number two. Now, an elected school board can get us there, or an elected school board could take us farther away from there, depending on how the elected school board is, comp- is comprised, depending upon what the rules are for how you get on that board. Because remember, we have an elected person in City Hall, and, but he's not representative. Mm. So the same people who bought that office mm-hmm. can buy the school board. The bigger question is how do we create a school board that is, one, representative of the people that it's supposed to represent, and number two, competent to do the job of running the school system. And so when you think about that, then it's more than just an elected school board. It's what are the rules we have to put in place to ensure that the people who end up on it represent us Mm -hmm. and know what the heck they're doing?
Tech Scene Chicago spoke to Eric Vasquez, the City of Chicago Clerk's Chief Technology Officer. Vasquez spoke about the need for greater diversity in the tech industry, how the City Clerk's Office is streamlining apps for the public to use, and how citizens can get involved. Tech Scene Chicago with Melanie Adcock airs every Friday at 1 p.m. Our first guest today is Eric Vasquez, the Chief Technology Officer of the Office of the City Clerk for the City of Chicago. He's here with us today to tell us about his role and the technology initiatives at the City Clerk's Office. Eric, welcome to the show. Hi, Melanie. Happy to be here. Thank well, you for having me. We're glad that you're here too, Eric. Um, well, well, let's let us start from the beginning, shall we? Um, tell us about your background and how you got into technology. So I'm a native Chicagoan. Uh, I grew up in the Logan Square neighborhood, as well as the Belmont Cragen neighborhood. For those not familiar, that's the northwest side of Chicago. Mm-hmm. I went to the University of Illinois uh, in the mid '90s, and uh, that was where the uh, Netscape web browser actually originated from. For those who are, are unfamiliar with that story, and really was, you know, the late '90s. I was a part of that internet boom. Uh, and given my, my age group, you know, I really wanted to be you know, on the cutting edge. So I really looked for opportunities where I could make an impact. And I saw technology as the most immediate way to do that. Hmm. And then and then what uh, made you decide to make the transition into government? After I took my, my career to the uh, startup world and and gained a lot of experience there. You know, I really was looking for an opportunity to stay civically engaged. Mm -hmm. I'd been involved previously in in different city programs in the Department of the Environmental uh, programs here in Chicago, as well as on the local school council for one of the CPS schools. But I was looking for an opportunity uh, to actually contribute more than what I was actually doing. Mm. Well, and, and as someone who has spent most of their career in the private sector, um, tell us about the differences between a tech ecosystem that's in the private sector um, and, and one that's in the government. They're actually not all that different. You know, you know when you're starting off building a company, especially uh, you know, these newer technology companies, you really have a, a limited amount of resources and time is not on your side. But you have to deliver the service or deliver the product. And really, I, I find that to be, you know, similar in the government sector. You know, we, we're very, uh, you know, careful of how we spend taxpayer dollars. Uh, we want to deliver the, the service the best way we can. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're really uh, conscious of that. So using technology uh, and, you know, to help us do that, I think, will allow us to accomplish these goals that we've set out for ourselves. Now, uh, you, you are Latino, and our, our city clerk is Latina as well, and she prides herself on having a very diverse staff. Um, how do you think diversity impacts uh, decision-making in, in your office? I, I think diversity in our office is, is critical. I think that having the, the different experiences you know, brought to the table, the different voices brought to the table. It, it really just makes for an overall better decision-making process mm-hmm. that will ultimately yield, I believe, the best decision mm-hmm. uh, just by that uh, dialogue that we, we get to have with each other. You know, we have you know, the biweekly senior staff meetings. 
um, where we, you know, in, give each other updates on what we're working on. But we stay, you know, it's a, it's a small office, lean office, if you will, uh, and we really stay engaged day to day, right? So I, I have equal access to, you know, the chief external affairs officer, just as I do the chief operations officer and the chief legal officer, right? I mean, they're within doors of each other, and mm-hmm. we have an, an extremely wide door open policy, right? Uh, cool. You know, very, very informal uh, when we're in our approach, but very uh, serious in, in sort of the nature of our discussions when we're talking about, you know, what's best for the, the people of Chicago. Wow. Well, it, it is terrific to see um, the city of Chicago setting such a good example in in the city clerk's office with that, um, and, and, and inspirational for, for everyone in tech to hear that, too. Now, now, why do you think we have a national diversity problem in technology? Awareness. Awareness on both sides. I, I think an awareness from the communities trying to get those opportunities. Mm-hmm. and awareness on those opportunity providers that there are plenty of people who could fill the roles that uh, they are you know trying to fill and i think that's uh, it's important for each side to bear the responsibility of how can i become more aware mm-hmm. you know, what are the different uh, you know information channels feeds that i can absorb and find out about this opportunity or about this particular person that, uh, you know, is just right for this role. You know, I, I had a recent conversation with a mayoral fellow who I explained that right now there is somebody that is looking exactly for you. And they know that you're out there, and but they're looking for you, and you need to be looking for that opportunity because right now, they're looking for someone with your personality, your skill set, and you know, hopefully the the two will meet and not pass each other like ships in the night, because mm-hmm. uh, right now that that may be happening. But I think that um, you know sort of reinforces my point about the awareness that there there are uh, opportunities out there and there are people out there. Mm-hmm. Well, what? What can we do to change um, these diversity issues that uh, the nation seems to be having in the tech industry? What are your thoughts on that? Start dialogues with with people that you normally don't dialogue with. I mm-hmm. think is 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 a good start. Um, you know, I, I believe you know there's a old um, sort of Abraham Lincoln saying that goes, you know, I don't like that person. I should get to know them better, mm. right? So mm-hmm. I mean, uh, there's a lot of you know, preconceived ideas about, you know, different groups. Like, you know, they they won't be a cultural fit here. Well, you, you don't know that. You don't, you, so, you know, we need to sort of start these dialogues because, as I said, they could be the exact person that you need. And, and you know, conversely, you don't discount, you know, opportunities because of something that you see in the media. Maybe, it, you know, that ex- is the exact place that you should be. Mm Because that's the exact place that you can make an impact.
Radio Free Bridgeport spoke to State Representative Marcus Evans, Jr. about the south side of Chicago, where the union movement needs to go, and the education bill recently passed in Illinois. This segment aired on a special Labor Day edition of Radio Free, which airs every Tuesday, drive time, from 4 to 6 p.m. You're listening to WLPN LP Chicago 105.5 FM Lumpin Radio. This is Radio Free Bridgeport. want to wish everybody a happy Labor Day. And we are uh, moving along in the Labor Day bash today, and we are welcomed by Representative Marcus Evans of the 33rd District. And uh, thank you for joining us. Hey, my pleasure. How's it going? Very good. Very good. So you guys have had a very interesting uh, uh, legislative year in the uh, the Illinois House. Yeah, for sure. You know, when you got uh, Republicans and Democrats and you got the divided with regards to the governor and the House and the Senate, um, it's not going to go as smooth as you like. You know, and I think... Uh, that's the, the, the nicest way I can say it. You know, we had some speed bumps, but I think we got the budget and we got the education funding passed, and that was critical. Tell us a little bit about your district and, and about what uh, folks are concerned about today on Labor Day. Yeah, well, you know, uh, it's funny. I, I spent a lot of time in Bridgeport restaurants. You know, I love uh, <laughs> get some great restaurants over here in Bridgeport over on 26th Street. So uh, my family started in uh, actually in the housing projects, uh, 26th and King Drive. So uh, my my family spent a lot of time, you know, uh, in and out of Bridgeport. Uh, but my district starts at 79th Street in Avalon Park community and goes all the way out to Salk Village. So you're talking uh, Avalon Park community, Chatham community, Calumet Heights, Eastside community, Hegwich community, Burnham, Cal City, Lansing, Linwood, Salk Village. So the southeast portion of uh, uh, Cook County. So what else is going on on, uh, on Labor Day in the, in the district? What are people uh, thinking about today? I don't know if I look refreshed or not, but uh, today was uh, parade day. You know, Labor Day is yeah. about parades. You know, um, we don't spend enough time talking about, you know, the true labor movement and the, the purpose of of today. But we know we don't have to go to school with the children and we don't have to go to work. But um, we had a parade today. I was out in Calumet City. And, um, again, it's about liberty. It's about um, celebrating our labor force. So that's what we did today. But uh, I'm... Did the whole parade route, shook hands, ran around, you know, did the politician thing. Well, we appreciate you coming here afterwards. Oh, yeah, no, my pleasure. I mean, I love opportunities to talk to the people, you know, uh, as a state rep. I don't just represent my specific community, but all the people. And and that's one, one of your committee assignments is education, and, and that's something I know you're, you're concerned about. Tell us a little bit about the uh, the ramifications of SB1 and hmm. and the bill that just uh, just went through this, this session. Yeah, uh, just the, the SB1 was so critical. You talk about how we fund education. We're one of the worst in the country, the state of Illinois. We're, we're about 47 or 48, depending on who's measuring. Uh, but bottom line, we're in the bottom of the nation. That's, let's start there. And our particular funding formula produces that. Just like with anything, um, in order to change the result, you got to change the effect. And I think um, we did that. We changed the funding formula to make it more evidence-based so that we're sending money to the folks who need it. It costs more money to educate a low income or the children would need. So let's send money to the places that need it. Some schools in some areas have high property wealth, so they don't have good schools. We want to make sure everybody has a good school. The whole point is any student in any public school should have a quality school. So we did that uh, in SB1. The final result ended up being uh, Senate Bill 1947, uh, which was also added a little piece for uh, private schools. And I think my focus is public schools. Uh, but uh, many members want to do something for the private schools, and that is what it is. Uh, so it all passed. We're going to help out some public private schools. We're going to focus on our public schools, and hopefully we'll look back 
couple, two or three years from now and say we did something good. You know, it's interesting you bring up that because that's been widely criticized. $75 million for uh, private schools is seen as a backdoor voucher plan that basically strips money out of the public schools. And here in Chicago, public school funding uh, is, let's just be frank about it, it's been very anemic for years. The bill that's just passed does add more money, but it doesn't come close to balancing the budget. What is your take on this very criticized plan to move $75 million essentially into private schools by providing tax credits to very wealthy people? Um, I probably, you probably would have had the same response that I had. Where is this coming from? Uh, is there any way we can avoid this? Uh, I'm on record voting no for that piece of legislation officially uh, because to me, it distracted from what we're doing. If we had an issue with our mortgage, you wouldn't be talking about paying the cable bill. You know, and in my view, the prime focus of government is the public entities to focus on the roads and bridges or what have you uh, and to get our education funding uh, where it should be. Um, being number 48, it was hard for me to justify assisting private schools at this point. Maybe we should. Other states have, but they're not number 48. We're, we were so bad in public education. So, um, again, I took issue with it. Like like a lot of folks did, some no votes, but in the grand scheme of things, uh, compromise is required in government. And that word compromise in situations like this, uh, you really understand what it is because it's members who wanted that, so we got so it passed. Going back to what happened with SB1, that was another major loss for union labor, if you look at it that way. And I wanted to ask your opinion. Union labor seems to be taking a lot of hits, but that the union is in a lot of ways, the pathway to the middle class for a lot of people in your district, for a lot of people in Bridgeport. Where do you see the union movement going uh, in the next year because of all these hits they're taking? Yeah, I mean, they're taking the hits uh, because the opposition is effective. You know, they have an effective message. You know, they're demonizing the unions. They're blaming things on the unions in which the unions have no no blame uh, for. Just even the pension issues, and they talk about maybe the Chicago teacher pension issues or any of the city pension issues, blaming individuals who paid into the system. And again, politicians would rather than moving around money or trying to do the right thing, made mistakes, or, you know, whatever it may be, it's blaming the unions. And we got to stop that. And I think people like you all and myself, we fight against it. I know I fight against it. When I'm in Springfield, you know, uh, I'm pro-union because I'm pro-business as well. I think I can do both. I think we can pay people a decent wage, and I think we can grow business. Um, it's been shown, but again, those folks who would like to pay people, you know, slave wages or or just barely making it wages, I don't know whatever you want to call it, to not be so, uh, you know, graphic with the, with the term slave, but we want to pay people enough to pay a mortgage or at least rent. And I uh, think unions are important to that. And the labor movement today is, in a, is an appropriate day because the people put the work in. You know, I don't think we should be turning the clock back in the labor movement. We should be moving forward. Uh, I'm dedicated to doing that, but I can't stop the opposition. I can only do what I can, which is fight against them and, and tell the truth. Um, again, one of the reasons why I had issues with, with the school bill because, you know, uh, we have a teachers union. They have a long history of fighting for their rights. And uh, it was concerning to, to see the hit that they took. Uh, but, you know, maybe the next candidate for governor will, will uh, see a little differently.
The Trump Diaries. A hurricane tears Houston apart while Trump grandstands. Trump cruelly ends the dream program with Jeff Sessions falsely claiming it is unconstitutional. The UN hits out at Trump. North Korea tests another nuke. And Mueller teams up with New York State. These are the Trump Diaries. Day 224, August 31st. The human rights chief of the United Nations said that Trump's denunciations of some media outlets as fake news could amount to an incitement to violence. The rebuke by Zayd Rad al-Hussein was an unusually forceful criticism of a head of state by a UN official. Al-Hussein called Trump's attacks poisonous and said they would have an effect on other countries around the world. And just before Hurricane Harvey hit Houston, Trump rescinded Obama's coastal flood protections. That order had required all federal, state, and local agencies to take steps to protect infrastructure from flooding caused by climate change. House Republicans also want to cut almost $1 billion from FEMA's disaster relief fund, which only has $2.3 billion remaining in his budget. FEMA is spending money in Houston at a rate of $9 million an hour. And Trump tweeted today that, quote, the U.S. has been talking to North Korea and then paying them extortion money for 25 years. Talking is not the answer. It is unclear what money Trump is referring to. And the White House will end an Obama-era policy aimed at addressing pay disparities. The data collection requirement required business owners to document how much they pay workers based on their gender, race, and ethnicity. Ivanka Trump, supporting the policy, issued a statement saying, quote, Ultimately, while I believe the intention was good and agree that pay transparency is important, the proposed policy would not yield the intended results. Day 225, September 1st. Robert Mueller and the New York Attorney General have teamed up to investigate Paul Manafort and his financial transactions. Mueller and Eric Schneiderman have been sharing evidence on potential financial crimes, including potential money laundering. Trump's pardon power does not extend to state crimes. Should any of Trump's allies be charged in New York State, Trump would be powerless to stop the investigation. And the Trump administration ordered Russia to close its consulate in San Francisco and two diplomatic annexes in New York and Washington, retaliating against Russia's orders for the USA to reduce its embassy staff in Moscow by 755 people. Secretary of State Rex Tillerson informed Russia's foreign minister of the tit-for-tat move in a phone call. Tillerson took pains to say the move was purely reciprocal. And a federal judge in San Antonio blocked Texas from enforcing its ban on so-called sanctuary cities, questioning the constitutionality of the law. The decision which Texas said it would appeal served as a legal blow to one of the toughest state issues immigration laws in the country. The law was so divisive it served as the backdrop of a shoving match at the Texas Capitol between Hispanic Democratic lawmakers and their white Republican colleagues. Day 226, September 2nd. Trump's lawyer vehemently denied working with Russia to disrupt the election. Michael Cohen gave Congress a point-by-point rebuttal of the 35-page dossier compiled by retired British spy Christopher Steele, which alleges Cohen had deep ties to Russian officials. Cohen denied all of the dossier's claims, including that he had secret meetings in Prague with a Russian official last summer. The authors of the dossier stand by their work. And Senate Republicans accused James Comey of trying to clear Clinton before the FBI had completed his investigation. Chuck Grassley, who chairs the Judiciary Committee, and Lindsey Graham, who chairs a subcommittee panel on crime and terrorism, say Comey drafted a statement exonerating Clinton's use of a private email server. The Republicans' claims are both deeply and deliberately misleading. Trump, however, seized on them and tweeted, quote, Wow, looks like James Comey exonerated Hillary Clinton long before the investigation was over. A rigged system. Trump's claims are false. And Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin will not commit to carrying out the Obama administration's plan to put Harriet Tubman on the $20 bill, saying he had not made a decision about the matter. Mnuchin said the decision would be based on how to design the currency in a way that prevents counterfeiting rather than those portrait was on the bill. Ultimately, we will be looking at this issue, Mnuchin said, but it's not something I'm focused on at the moment. 
Day 227, September 3rd. Health and Human Services cut the Affordable Care Act budget by 90%. They'll spend just $10 million promoting open enrollment, which starts in November. The Obama administration spent $100 million last year. In addition, Health and Human Services has been spending money to discourage people from using Obamacare at all. And the special counsel, Robert Mueller, has obtained a letter that Trump and a top political aide drafted in the days before Trump fired that FBI director, James Comey. That letter was not sent as White House counsel believed that some of its contents were problematic. Trump composed the letter with Stephen Miller. And black smoke was seen pouring from the Russian consulate in San Francisco. The Trump administration had ordered Russia to close that consulate. The temperature in San Francisco on that day was 100 degrees. And Mueller has teamed up with the IRS's Criminal Investigations Unit, which focuses exclusively on financial crime, including tax evasion and money laundering. If Mueller wants to bring charges against Trump associates over tax violations, he will need approval from the Justice Department's tax division. Trump hasn't nominated anybody to run that division yet. Day 228, September 4th. North Korea stunned observers by successfully testing a miniaturized hydrogen bomb they claim is capable of fitting on an ICBM. Defense Secretary James Mattis warned North Korea of a massive military response and the total annihilation of the country if it threatens to attack the U.S. and its allies. It is unclear what Kim Jong-un's endgame is. Some believe he is attempting to create a bomb that would be used to blackmail the Trump administration. The Justice Department said it has no evidence to support Trump's claim that Obama wiretapped the phones in Trump Tower. The DOJ made the statement in response to an FOI Act lawsuit by the watchdog group American Oversight. The department's statement reads both the FBI and NSD confirmed they have no records related to wiretaps, as described by the March 4th, 2017 tweets. Day 229, September 5th. North Korea is, quote, begging for war, said Nikki Haley to the UN Security Council. Trump also accused South Korea of appeasement toward North Korea and warned that the U.S. could halt trade with North Korea's trade partners. That is an almost impossible threat given American dependence on Chinese imports. And North Korea is said to be readying a new ICBM test as the crisis in that nation escalates. The USA is now demanding China cut off fuel oil to the nation. That move, long seen as a last resort, could bring the hermit kingdom to its knees. China has resisted due to the refugee crisis it could cause. And Trump's pick to lead NASA doesn't believe that humans are causing climate change. Representative Jim Bridenstine of Oklahoma would be the first elected official to hold the job and needs Senate confirmation. The two senators who represent Florida's Space Coast have publicly objected to the choice of a politician as the head of a space agency. Day 230, September 6th. Trump ordered the end to a program that shields young undocumented immigrants from deportation, calling DACA, quote, an amnesty-first approach and urging Congress to replace it. It will now be phased out in March. The announcement brought massive protests into American streets. Adding to the chaos was a tweet from Trump later in the day in which he claimed he would, quote, revisit the decision if Congress does not act. Obama called Trump's decision and DACA cruel and self-defeating. In a Facebook post, Obama added that to, quote, target these young people is wrong because they have done nothing wrong. And the Department of Homeland Security will be able to use DACA recipients' personal information to deport them. DACA recipients gave DHS information proving they are undocumented. DHS said it won't proactively provide immigration officers with a list with the names and addresses of DACA recipients, but if ICE officers ask for it, the agency will provide it. And a group of prominent Republican politicians filed briefs on Tuesday urging the Supreme Court to rule that extreme political gerrymandering violates the Constitution. The briefs were signed by, among others, Senator John McCain, Governor John Kasich, Arnold Schwarzenegger, and Bob Dole. The briefs were filed in opposition to a case involving Wisconsin redistricting. The RNC supports the case. And televangelist Jim Baker claims Christians would begin a second civil war in the U.S. if Trump were impeached. 
if that happens, there will be a civil war in the United States of America. The Christians will finally come out of the shadows because we are going to be shut up permanently if we're not careful, said Baker. In related news, a group of evangelicals released the so-called Nashville Statement, which denounced gay marriage and condemned acceptance of transgender people. In recent polling, 56% of voters feel Trump is tearing the country apart. That poll was conducted by Fox News. Reuters also reports that sales of Confederate flags have boomed since the violence in Charlottesville. And Gallup polling says just 34% of voters approve of Trump's performance, a new low. These are the Trump Diaries. Hey there, Spiffy. What's the occasion? I got a wake to go to today. Oh, friend or family? See, uh, Jack O'Brien, 70 years old. Did you know this person? Well, not personally. So not at all? Well, yes, no, no. Why would you go to his funeral? Yeah, read this. Yeah. It's very well written. Seems like the type of guy I might have paled around with at some point. I have a sneaking suspicion it's too late to form a friendship with Mr. O'Brien. Listen, can I get a ride with you? I don't have a car. I know, but you got a bike. You are not borrowing my bike, dude. I I can ride on your spokes. You can just borrow it. I don't know how to ride a bike. (sighs) Great. I gotta teach you how to ride a bicycle. All right, how do I look? The suit is a little tight on you. Yeah, it's my shoeskies. Oh, excuse me. Hello, so sorry for your loss. Thanks. You must be the grandson. Yeah, yeah. Granddad was a great man. We used to get ripped all the time together. Yeah, wish I could have had one with him. No, you don't. Trust me. (laughs) Thanks for coming. Thanks for being here. Don't mention it. Thanks again. Pardon me. Trout, this is Jessica, my biographer. Jessica, this is Trout. Hello. Uh, I have to assume you didn't know the deceased either? Correct. Uh, closed coffin. Make it look like you're praying. Ah. This is a nice casket. Jerry? Yeah, maybe Oak. Trout, use your hook, pop it open. Hold on, Kyle. Hold on. Let me figure out where the handle is. Wow. Look at this guy. Look at that. That's a nice Rolex. Damn shame they're going to bury him with it. You see, Jessica, when you're as old as me and Trout, you got to consider how you want to be laid out. This is why we crash wakes. I see. Got to review your options. Well, he really does look smart, and that's yeah. such a nice watch. Did you see the old bit pick on this one? Gonna I brought it with me. Hold it up to his face. Okay. Come here, look at this comparison. This is very disrespectful. Tell me about it. He didn't look this good when he was alive. It's a little rude to tell him that. Hold up, didn't you say this guy had a Rolex? Hey, why is the coffin Somebody open? in the very near vicinity's got very fast hands. Who the hell opened the coffin? Look at that. Time to go. Mario Smith also spoke to Theodore Witcher, director of the legendary film Love Jones. In this rare interview, Witcher opens up about the roots of his film his love for Chicago, and what's next for him. News from the service entrance airs every Thursday at 2 p.m. As I get ready to introduce a friend of mine who I hadn't seen until last night in like a billion years, (laughs) Um, (laughs) Theodore Witcher is responsible for one of the culture's greatest movies ever. I've never said that to him before. Love Jones uh, changed 
the game of poetry, particularly in this city. But what people don't know is that my friend Theodore Witcher is quite the poet himself. Um, he doesn't do this oh. often. I'm not going to bust you out that bad, brother. <laughs> he, he, he doesn't do interviews often, if at all. So him agreeing to come on this show is just, I, I'm one, I'm stunned, and two, I'm very grateful. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my honor to introduce to you the director of Love Jones and other great movies that you need to check out, Theodore Witcher. What's up, brother? How you doing, man? Man, I am okay. <laughs> I, I didn't hang out with you and, and Will, so I survived. You survived another <laughs> uh, crazy episode. Okay. Uh, I can only imagine. That spot last night, but we won't talk about that. No, nah, that's okay. We don't have to, but I, I know the two of you pretty good. I can imagine where these things went. <laughs> Tonight, you're It be- was good to see you, though. It was, uh, man, I absolutely, more than you know, man, it was really cool to see you. Tonight at the Gene Siskel Film Center, Love Jones is being uh, uh, viewed as part of the Black Harvest Film Festival, and Theodore will be talking uh, about the movie, I, mean, I never asked you because I never got a chance to. I know what it was like making it. I can imagine what it was like watching it. The aftermath of Love Jones, at least for me, we were doing stuff at another level at LitX after Spices had stopped. And when that right. movie came out, they came running to us. Newsweek, The Wall Street Journal, CNN. All of this was happening so fast, and it was all based on that movie. And not just the movie, but the idea of Chicago being this unknown uh, incubator for all these great poets and stuff. What was that experience like for you after the movie was done? Well, you know, it's interesting that you say that because I'd never, I'd never actually found out what the impact of the release of the film was on the poetry scene specifically in Chicago. Mm-hmm. Uh, because, you know, I, w- I was living in Los Angeles and, uh, and had, you know, moved on down the road and didn't really, didn't really think about it. But um, now that you bring it up, I can, I can imagine that uh, it must have, you know, at least for a while, it must have uh, made the scene, you know, that much more popular or that much more sort of dynamic. You, you have to tell me about that. Well, allow me. It's still happening. And it's oh, really? it, it, yeah it when when okay spi- here's this is how the world works spices flooded I don't know if you knew that I didn't know that either all right spices flooded it was an, it was on Tuesday we were all supposed to be down there or Monday rather we were supposed to be down there spices flooded me and Malik Youssef are taking chairs out of spices Malik looks right. at me he goes you know what man we need to to go and Tina Tina M Howell had been on right. me about coming up to Lit X we go to Lit X changes the world for me we do poetry and all that stuff love jones comes out the soundtrack alone which we'll talk about in a minute is mesmerizing that that the the soundtrack is still holding up you would think the movie just came out a week ago right sure and i'm telling you literally cnn billboard newsweek wall street journal all these different entities these national and international news people started coming then out of that, there was poetry all over. I mean, it was already really all over the place, but it started getting a lot more notoriety. Around that time, the Double Door was a pool hall when we first started coming up to Wicker Park. Again, the Love Jones effect, they went into full concert mode. The Roots were there. Right. All these great black acts were playing on this, in this very, very diverse neighborhood in Wicker Park. 
right. it just it never stopped, man. And I think it made people it made stars out of some folks, and and it and it it made a lot of people not like each other. <laughs> right, but, right, but but we we the the poetry in Chicago we can really trace a lot of this upswing, and it's still happening to the movie Love Jones. Well, that's good. <laughs> you did yeah, good. Yeah, we used to do um, work. Hot House was on the was on our circuit there mm-hmm. uh, as well. I don't know if Hot House is still there, but right there at uh, Milwaukee North Damon, Hot House I is mean, still around. That's when you know when I was in the Funky Wordsmiths. That's where that was one of the spots that we would play at. Yep. Um, we actually shot a part of the movie. We shot a couple scenes in the movie right on that block uh, as well. But um, Lit X, of course, Hot House. That was those were the Northside joints for us back in the day. Now this is we're talking twenty five years, right? Uh, or, you know, or thereabouts, like early nineties, right? Uh, so that's good. That, and, you know, now that neighborhood's completely changed. It's, it's it's just something entirely different. Everything's changed completely. I, I haven't been here in, in a number of years. My brother graduated from, uh, got his master's at University of Chicago, and the last time I was back was when he graduated, and that was over 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. And just, you know, being here just for the, the day that I've been here uh, is tremendous. I mean, it's just the town has changed so much; it's incredible. But I'm, I'm glad to hear that uh, that the poetry thing is still going on. That's really cool. Oh yeah, it's still happening. I, I'm more on the radio side of things these days. I'm not really as yeah. uh, as versed in in doing that, but Karish is still plugging away. And really, oh yeah, absolutely, <laughs> no doubt. Karish, I believe right. is the man. There's a lot still going on in, in this city. Tyamba Jess, I mean, Tyamba Jess hit me on on a. And your man Greg Kelly told me to tell you, former Hawkeye, hello. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it's it's happening. Um, and I know you got to go, but I want to real quick uh, talk about the soundtrack of that movie, man. Sure. It, it really ch- kind of part brought in in well, it, it the the soundtrack of movies, particularly movies of people of color, have always been the thing. Superfly and you know Shaft yeah. and things like that. But they talk about this soundtrack with those classic albums. When, what was the process of putting this together like? Well, you know, it's interesting. I actually, to be honest with you, I didn't even want to do a soundtrack like that at the time um, because I was I wanted the movie to be just completely scored. I felt it was a little bit, I hate to use the R word, I felt it was, there was a little bit of, they were putting us in a box mm-hmm. because all the, I won't use the R word, but let, let me just say they, they, they put us in a box, I felt, because... All of the black movies just had to have a soundtrack, mm-hmm. had to have a bunch of pop tunes in it. And, like, you go see any other normal mainstream, we use that word as a euphemism, mainstream movie, um, and they not every one of them had a soundtrack. If it was appropriate for the movie, they had one. But otherwise, the movie had a score. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, oh, you all are going to put me in a box. Why can't I just have my movie have a score like all of the mainstream movies that I was trying to emulate? So. Mm-hmm. You know, it was just so expected that we were, it wasn't even a question. It was the, the powers that be just kind of expected that we were going to go down that route. So it became obvious to me that that wasn't a battle I was going to win. I was like, well, let's figure out a way to make it the best record we could possibly make it. And something that, that is uh, a, 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 a musical analog to the film. Mm-hmm. Like music that the characters in the film would listen to, not just a bunch of famous pop stars or R&B stars or whatever glommed onto a record to sell records. Let's make something that's really as best we can make uh, connected to the movie. Mm-hmm. So we got here's where we got lucky. At that time, uh, Columbia Records 
had most of or many of the artists that were part of the neo-soul movement. And the fact that there was the neo-soul movement and that that was sort of in the wind and that we could find those artists all under one roof largely was just a complete timing stroke of luck thing. So we made a deal with Columbia Records, and that's how we got to uh, Lauren Hill and Maxwell and everybody else. And then, and then they let me put a few other artists on the record, like Cassandra Wilson and, you know, Michelle and Diocello. Mm -hmm. The Lincoln Center Jazz Orchestra was something that Sony already owned, so that was easy. And uh, they couldn't argue me on that. They, they really weren't that happy about putting jazz on this record. They already own the master because the Lincoln Center Jazz Orchestra records for the company. Right, right. You know, the funny thing, man, fun, funny thing, it sounded like the stuff we listened to at Spices. Exactly. It just sounded like so, stuff we would normally listen to anyway. Exactly. So I felt like I got extremely lucky with those artists. Uh, that they knew, you know, I didn't write the material. I didn't, I had nothing to do with it other than, you know, naming the artists that I wanted to go after. And uh, they all came through. They all understood exactly what the movie was and what it needed to sound like. My favorite example is Lauren. Um, I wanted a Lauren Hill solo track because at the time that we were here making the film, the Fuji's record, the score, mm -hmm. was just, you know, becoming, a, a, every week was selling more and more copies. It was a huge thing. And in fact, we uh, Lauren almost wound up in the movie. Mm. Uh, but there was a scheduling conflict. She couldn't actually be in the movie because of the Fuji's uh, touring schedule. Wow. Anyway, so a year later, we're putting the record together. And I wanted a Lauren Hill solo track. And we sent her the movie. And she watched the movie on the bus. They were on tour. <coughs> Excuse me. And... Um, she rang us back and was like, I have the perfect song for this. It wasn't even a new thing. It was like something that she already had sitting in her back pocket. She was like, this is the perfect song for this. And she sent over the sweetest thing. And it wasn't even a demo. It was like a finished version of the song. Mm. And I heard it. And in three seconds, I was like, that's perfect. That's going in right now. Wow. And all of them kind of it worked that way pretty much for all of them because I rang up Cassandra Wilson. I was like, would you write something for us? And then sent her the movie. And she was like, I know exactly what to do with that. And sent me that track. And, you know, on and on down the road. And we actually built something that wound up being uh, pretty cohesive uh, as, a, as a group of songs. They all sound like it's coming out of the same place, even though there's all these different artists. Right, right. right. And that's where I felt like with the record, uh, we just it's just a timing thing, man. We just got really lucky with that group at that time with that company and the whole thing and it and it worked pretty well. Real quick, are you working on anything else or is, is that still something you you know oh i'm always I'm always working on something new. I'm writing a movie um, <laughs> and uh, you know, maybe we'll get this one made. We'll see. Right, but, you know, never know what the future holds, but I'm, I, I am interested in making another film. That would be nice to do. Happy 20th anniversary, my friend, and congratulations Thanks, to you. The Lumpin' Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. The Week in Review is edited and engineered by Logan Bay. The Lumpin' theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. Lumpin' Radio Sting by Dan Jugal. Voiceovers by Ed Marzuski, Jamie Trecker, and Shanna Van Volt. For more information on Lumpin' Radio, 
visit lumpinradio.com. Lumpin Radio broadcasts on 105.5 FM in the Chicago area and worldwide via lumpinradio.com. Thank you.